Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Brandon T. Snyder. Brandon is the author of the award-winning Dark Knight Manual, as seen in Entertainment Weekly, Time, Forbes, and Wired, as well as the Avengers Infinity War, the Cosmic Quest series. Additionally, he's written books featuring Cartoon Network favorites like Adventure Time and Regular Show, Marvel Spider-Man, and Black Panther, plus pop culture icons such as Justice League, Transformers, and The Muppets. Brandon has also written for and appeared on Comedy Central's Inside Amy Schumer. Brandon, that's a long list of things. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're both in New York. That doesn't always happen on this podcast. A lot of the times because we Skype, we, you know, it's, it's conducive to interviews across different cities and different places, but you're in the same city, but you're where? In- I'm in Astoria, Queens, also mm-hmm. known as Actoria because so many actors live here. Is that true? Yes, it is. It's funny because I was having this conversation the other day about somebody about Astoria. When I moved here in 1999, there was a thing on the cover of Time Out magazine that said, Astoria, the new Bohemia? And I always think of that because I feel like like so many New York um, uh, like places in the boroughs and just like parts of town where Every so often it becomes that, you know, a a place will become a thing where it's like, oh, Brooklyn. Oh, no, Queens. Oh, no, this area. Oh, no, they're rebranding. And I feel like when I talk to people now about Astoria, they're like, oh, yeah, that's like a a hot new. And I'm like, it's been a hot new place for 20 years. It's really just one of the last. I mean, it's pretty. I'm not saying pretty expensive. It's gotten more expensive over the years. I remember when it was a lot cheaper and that's why people moved here. And now they're like, oh, it's, you know, I know people that are trying to buy stuff in Astoria for like a million dollars. Have you been living in Astoria for a while? Did that factor in as a writer and an actor to picking that particular neighborhood have a, was it part of like your decision-making? No, it was, um, so my friend, Kevin Kane, who is also somebody that I work with because we both are in a theater company together. We went to college together and he graduated a year before I did. And so we sort of made a pact to, uh, stick together when it came to you know New York City and stuff. Um, and he was like, you know, when when you're when you graduate, like I'll have a place. So wherever you, you know, whenever you're ready, come on up. So he lived in Astoria, um, and so we were roommates for like six years when I first moved here, and that's how I got here. And then over the years, um, it just again, it's like affordability. Once I got a place of my own and had more space, and then when I had like an office. I reached that thing where it's like, if I'm trying to move into the city and pay as much money as I do for a place here, um, I will be live. I'd be living in a shoebox, and I need, I need some more space. I mean, once I started acquiring stuff like a bed and a couch and like furniture, I was like, I gotta go where I can afford to have all these things and not. Uh, yeah, Manhattan's just super expensive. Yes, it is. Why do people move to New York City as writers and actors? Do you have to be in a big city like LA or New York to thrive? Could you be remote these days, given the technology and all that kind of thing? Well, I think I think people move here because of dreams. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, really, it's like it's one of those places that you know people read about, they see. I mean, now connectivity with social media and just the internet in general, you know, you you in theory people have 
much more information and stuff at their fingertips to investigate different places to live. But for me, like moving here, it was here or California, or at one point I was like London, because they were the places that I knew where the entertainment business was. And they're the places I wanted to be creatively. And I know that a lot of people, I experienced people that I went to college with, some of whom moved here and then others who didn't. A lot of times it was about the sort of promise of New York. I'm going to, once I get my stuff together, I'm going to move to New York. And once I do this and I'm going to move to New York. Um, And part of that was something that I think some people really had the intent to follow through with. And sometimes once they got to a place where they're like, oh my God, moving to New York and declaring myself in pursuit of a career in the entertainment business is like a big deal. And it was like, it's an overwhelming thing. For me, I always knew that I would have to move to one of these places if I wanted to act. Um, And at that, when I moved here, writing was very personal for me. It wasn't something I was pursuing professionally. Um, And even now, I love New York. It's exhausting after having been here for so long. It's like, there's part of me that's like, I've seen New York through a bunch of stuff. So we're good if we part ways. But yeah, it's like, I want to live here. But I also want to be someplace where there are trees and sky. And I don't have to pay a million dollars for things. For an aspiring writer, you just talked about your motivation for moving to New York. You know, the irony of living in New York is there's just so much going on. There's so many temptations. There's so many places to eat and drink. And actually, a lot of aspiring creatives end up getting kind of distracted. How have you been able to be prolific? I read a really long list of stuff that you've done that was really impressive. How have you been able to do it in such a crazy you know, city with so much going on? I assume you're not just sitting in your apartment all the time. How have you been able to balance those things? Well, well it's funny you should say that because I was like, well, I, I haven't drank in seven years. You know, moving, okay, so I moved here in 99. And the first few years here are my wandering years. What am I doing? I'm absorbing, I'm meeting people. I was building, in the beginning, of building a life here. Um, and, and trying to, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, which is a very conservative place. Um, and I, I was just trying to experience things and, and try to figure things out to an extent because I also was not completely keyed in on who I was. I was very shut off. And it wasn't until I put in a lot of like, not a lot of party years, but I, I, I used to go out a lot. I had a period of time where I was, um, I'd gotten a day job at Mark Jacobs. Well, I should, let me, let me backtrack. So my first, my first sort of period of time here, I was all over the place. I had a day job. I was doing PA work. I was just sort of absorbing everything. And then um, I quit a job and was uh, for many years doing temp work. During that period of time, I also was uh, acting in plays and, and doing like sketch and improv. And I but I took a lot of like random jobs. I was like I did for like a week. I did like the switchboard at Lifetime TV. Like uh, I was I dressed up as Barbie's magical unicorn off and on for a year wow. uh, for Mattel. Because I had gone in to audition for them as an actor to be one of the people that presents toys at Toy Fair, just really like at the Mattel booth being like, look at this. What do you think? Ooh, an action figure. And I had an agent at the time who was like, they loved you. Um, But they have something a little bit different. (laughs) And then I was hired to be this, like to dress up as uh, Barbie's magical unicorn. And I did it because it was $300 a pop. And I, nobody saw my face, even though I almost died in that suit. But then I got this job after, I want to say this was in 2004, 
as a temp at Mark Jacobs in the office in the product development department. And a really cool job, a really cool boss who was very supportive of my acting career and my writing career because those things were sort of my writing career more taking off at that at that moment in time. And so she's like, look, I I, I was only supposed to be there for 30 days. And she was like, look, I want you to stay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you pursue these other things, but, but, you know, stay. So I did. And I ended up being there for seven years. And that was like a different phase of my life uh, because I went out, I partied a lot. I, I've definitely had a lot of good times in New York City. I have a lot of stories. But then in 2012, I was uh, Amy Schumer asked me to write on the pilot episode of Inside Amy Schumer. And so it was like the perfect time for me to say goodbye to day jobs and all that stuff. I was like, this is a perfect time for me to be like, you know what, I'm writing full time. I'm going to make it work. I'll do my thing. And so that's when I quit. A year previous, I stopped drinking because I had a bit of a, um, a liver. I had a fatty liver, which is not something that's life-threatening. But I, I basically was like, you know what, I have put in a lot of social time. Um, at that time, I was working a lot. I was going out a lot. I was eating a lot of bad stuff. And I wasn't sleeping. And my body was just like, can you just please take a nap? Like, just rest. <laughs> so I gave alcohol. I was like, I put, thank you for the memories. Uh, and I stopped drinking. And then a year later, I left my day job. And I was in this, all of a sudden, I'd had this experience writing for the for Schumer show. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like, I'm now a full-time, like, I'm, I don't have a day job. I don't have a fallback. I'm not drinking. Like I had sort of clouds part. Um, and I swear to God, I have a point. And then I met <laughs> my current partner who is male and I was like, Oh shit, I'm going to have to come out now. Uh, because we started to get serious and I, I had never through many years through li- working in fashion, through being in the arts and entertainment field, there were people, including my close friends and family, who I had never had a conversation uh, with about being gay. And um, that was also a time where, so eventually, I, so I came out to my family, I came out, you know, my, my partner and I became closer. And um, my storytelling decided to change because now I was finally in this new, really fertile, creative space where I was, I was living truthfully. I had put a lot of my, like, wandering, wanderlusty behaviors behind me where it was like, okay, now it's time to get serious. And that's the phase I'm in now. So I'm like, I'm in this phase now where um, I put my time in and I'm, I'm still building things as a writer. I'm still trying to reconcile a lot of the stories that I have to tell personally. Um, but I put, if I can't tell it, if I can't tell my story, I'm still figuring it out. Um, I will put those things into my work somewhere. So you'll be like, oh, but nobody knows. Oh, that's just like a, a guy who's trying to still come to grips with the fact that he came out late. Great. You know, going back to you and what you do, I, like I said, I read a long list of accomplishments that you've had. Would you mind explaining this in your words? What exactly it is that you do, you've done, and how you identify? You know, just because we talked about it briefly, you're both a writer, you're both an actor, and you've done a lot of different stuff. So could you just explain to us like who you are, what you do, and how you view it from your perspective? Yeah, so I, I consider myself a writer-actor. And it's weird because sometimes people will think of me as one thing and not the other, or they'll think of me as one thing over the other. And I never really gauge, like, I never really think of how people think of me. But when it comes up, I'll be like, oh, no, so you think um more of this. Interesting. I mean, I have a degree in theater from Coastal Carolina University, and I moved to New York to be an actor. 
and writing for me was always something throughout my life that I did for myself. It wasn't for other people. When I was a kid, I was huge into comic books um, and I wrote stories, superhero stories. And then I, I did a little of that in high school. And then in college, I, I, I wrote stuff for me. I was doing essays for, for classes, um, one of which was published in the Sun News in Myrtle Beach. And that made me feel a little bit more confident in my skills. But at the same time, I wasn't trying to pursue it. And I wasn't even necessarily at that time looking to uh, hone my skills. I was just like, I write for myself it get to get it out of my brain and that's it. And then I moved to New York um, with the naive thought that I would have more acting opportunities. I, I remember even thinking too, before I got here, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to get a day job because I'm going to have so many auditions. And then it was like, are you out of your mind? Like that's not a reality. So writing for me then took on a different shape because creatively it was more of an outlet for me. I wasn't having acting experience or I wasn't having um, acting opportunities lined up for me. Whereas for writing, I could do that on my own and grow that work uh, without having to get, you know, somebody else's sort of approval, you know? Um, And I was in an improv sketch comedy group and that's where I, it was sort of a, you know, it was a boot camp when you're producing that much material all the time in a group setting. So it was like, I was writing sketches all the time and you know there were things that was also when i began that thing of like writing things and then having people be like no and you're like wait what <laughs> i put so much time and energy this is brilliant because i had never put my stuff in front of places so rejection was not the same thing to me it wasn't like i was necessarily like this is brilliant but i mean i mean there were times where i was like this is brilliant you clearly don't get it but like when you know it i had to go back to the drawing board and be like well not everything is going to be golden and my work grew and grew to the point where I was like, I had more than sketches. And a friend of mine, Carrie Karanen, who is also um, an actor and voiceover artist, she and I put together a, a bunch of one-act plays that we called The Carrie and Brandon Show that we did at a place called Belt Theater, which was next to the Zipper Theater. And a friend of a friend saw that and forwarded my name because one of the pieces one of the plays oh it's by the way the carrie and brandon show like we self-produced we directed it we acted in it there were six pieces it was a cast of like 12 plus people it was so it was such a big undertaking and i look back and i'm like i don't even know how we did it because it was just so much to manage but that happened and then um one of the pieces was about uh sort of like a low-rent superhero group and um, a friend of a friend passed my name to an editor of Meredith Publishing who was like, who got in t- touch with me and said that the, the, somebody had written a Fantastic Four sound storybook for them. And the script to the movie changed. So they needed somebody to go to Marvel, read the, the new script, and then adjust the manuscript for the sound storybook. Um, and it's one of those books where it's for little kids and you have like a symbol where uh, a word is and you've just like, once you see that symbol. So if it's fire, there's like a hole, there's like a thing on the side of the book that has this little sound thing and you press fire and it makes a sizzle sound or whatever. So I was like, oh my God, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened to me. I'm going to Marvel to read the Fantastic Four film script. I will never have this experience again. So I did that. I made the changes. Everyone was happy. Um, And I was like, there's going to be a book with my name on it. And then that editor was like, do you want to do a Batman one? 
And I was like, oh yeah. So I, I wrote up pitches, pitched it, chose one, wrote it. Then Superman Returns came. Do you want to do Superman Returns one? Did that. And then I was meeting with um, an editor at DC Comics, Chris Sarasi, uh, who worked in licensed publishing. And he was like, so you're going to be doing our sound storybook. Do you want to do our, our chapter book too? And I was like, yeah, sure. Meanwhile, I'm like, I've never written anything <laughs> even considered close to a chapter book. And I was like, I, and I told him, I was like, I've never done one of those before. He's like, you'll be fine. And meanwhile, you know, it's one thing to write like a, a kid sort of sound storybook, like as far as, you know, the output, you know what it is. I was like, oh, it's, you know, X amount of pages, not a ton of words. It's, you know, it takes work, but whatever. A chapter book is like, I mean, it's 10,000 plus words. And that was an overwhelming amount of material in one piece that I had never been asked to produce before. So there was part of me that was like completely shitting my pants thinking that there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And then of course, the other part that's like, I'm, yeah, I'm doing it. I'll do it. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning and, and of my writing career. And then I was, I was, I was moonlighting as a writer, putting in full, full-time job. Um, and you know, I, I do mainly stuff for young readers uh, as far as published works. And I love what I do. And I've, I've been able to write for a lot of properties like DC and DC and Marvel stuff that I've been a huge fan of. But it's really interesting because the people that I've worked with, I've worked with a lot of the same people over the years. And people will be like, how did you get from one to the next? And it's weird now because I've done it enough that I, I can sort of draw a path. But when you do good work for people um, and you hit your deadlines and you're nice to work with and you're not difficult. Like it does matter. And I think that is one of those things I just, even though I didn't always have the experience, I was able to work with people who were willing to be patient with me. And also, you know, I, I fulfilled my end of the bargain by doing the work that they needed me to do and doing it on time. And that's how those people would introduce me to other editors. And it sort of snowballed. In the past year, I've been really busy. And just in the past like six months, I've had to turn down writing work, which in my in the back of my brain still, even when it's something that I don't necessarily want to do, I still have that thing of like, you better take that job because you need to pay your bills. And that's just like in my brain, that sort of hunger acting and writing wise, where you know, you're just like, take it, you, you need to pay your bills, you need to do the work. And so yeah, uh, I think I made a point in there somewhere. You did make a point. You didn't tell us how you, I mean, you mentioned it earlier briefly, but how you kind of started working on Amy Schumer and kind of how that ties into your okay. identity as well compared to being a writer. Yes. So um, Kevin Kane, who I mentioned before, him and Schumer and a, um, a bunch of other people went to the William Esper, studied at the William Esper studio, acting studio. Um, and when they graduated, a group of them started a theater company called The Collective. Um, and Kevin brought me into the group and we did like, so as fundraisers for the full productions that we would do, Amy would host this thing called collective comedy. And it was basically like we would rent out a space and just throw this sort of like party um, under the guise of like, come see Amy host a night of stand-up comedy and stuff. And she would get people like uh, friends of hers in the comedy world. And this is before she had like a major hit, but she had been gaining steam. And so she would get people to come and do stuff. And what we would always do was I would write, a one act play that we would do to open the show. So there was this theatrical element and there was always like beer 
we, we used to do them at this place called the Actors Temple in Midtown. It was a really cool stage space and it was packed. Like it was packed to the gills. People were just like drinking and having a good time. Not really knowing, you know, it was just like that thing of like, oh, well, there's a comedy show. It's $20 to get in and then you can like, you know, do whatever. Um, so that's how I got involved with Amy and we would do these one act plays before the shows. Um, and yeah, that's that. It's funny now to think back to the early days because when we were putting those things together, they came about so quickly that sometimes it was like, oh, I wrote this thing. And then we'd be like, yeah, well, we're going to rehearse it three times. Um, and then we're just going to do it on this Friday night at the show. Um, and yeah, it was very fly by the seat of the pants. And when you look in the mirror, you do you see writer or do you see actor? Uh, when I look in the mirror, you really <laughs> don't know what I see. Um, I see both. I mean, really, it's about I, what I came to realize about what it means to me is that they're just they're different muscles that I, I work creatively. I, as an actor, I try to to approach things individually, like one as an actor, one as a writer, as, especially when I'm doing my own work. I, I wrote a short play a couple years ago called A Weekend Conference. It was about three guys, a dark comedy, a short play about three guys on their way to a gay reparative therapy um, retreat. And... Um, Richard Masser, who is a prolific uh, character actor or actor in general, really, um, he directed it. And I wrote the piece and was going to be in it and was like, and so it sometimes is hard, depending upon who I'm working with, it's, it can be hard for me to take off a writer hat and just wear an actor hat because I'm like in it, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention to what people are doing and being like, that line is wrong or whatever. Um, but when I sat down, to read the first time with the cast, Richard really got the piece in a way that allowed me to give up the control that I would have as a writer and just be an actor. So that when we would have rehearsals, I wasn't hearing what these actors did or messing up a lot, you know, all the minutiae. So, you know, I turn things off and on when I have to, but I really, I think of myself as a, I don't know, multi-hyphenate? Would that be a writer slash actor, sometimes an actor slash writer, then also just don't put me in a box. <laughs> a multi-potentialite, which I brought up on a couple other episodes. I, I saw Ted talk <laughs> about that, where you, people who aren't, you know, stuck in one particular genre. Um, just to get into process a little bit, you had mentioned at one point writing a chapter book and having no experience writing that chapter book and saying you kind of had to dive into like a ton of uh, material. How did you go about that? What was your strategy and how did you overcome that pressure of having to deliver, I imagine, helped you get it done? Yeah. Well, the pressure of deliver too, it's like for me writing like Superman, especially Superman Returns, because it was like at, before, of course, this is a year before it came out. So I was just like, oh, this is going to be amazing. You know, there's that thing of like, I'm living, I'm now actually living a dream. Um, I'm, I'm writing a character that I dreamed of writing and drawing, even though I can't draw with a shit. Um, I, if I could draw my whole life would be different. I would be, I would, I'd be on a yacht somewhere if I could draw. I don't know what that means, but it's true. I, the Superman thing was like, you know, like the sort of, you can only hold on to the living the dream or living your dream thing for so long because you have so much work to do. So I, I don't even like the, like the dark Knight manual. When I got that gig, I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to go to Warner brothers and read the thing. And then it's like, oh no, you have to write 30,000 words really quickly. So you shake off all that stuff. And with regard to the Superman Returns chapter book, um, touched a little bit th about this uh, at brunch today with my friends about how it's not, 
I don't want to say fake it till you make it because I feel like that cheapens a lot of the hard work that people do. But there are a lot of people in creative spaces in the professionals who don't know as much about the thing that is being made as they let on. And and you look around and sometimes it's like, that might be a lot of the people on the thing that you work on. People are people, creative people are trying to figure it out just as much as you might be trying to figure out. Um, and they might be higher than you on a perceived totem pole or look, but, but with the, with the chapter book thing, I expressed that I had never done it before. And, and my editor, you know, I mean, I think part of it was like timing and things. It was like, yeah, we'll just do it. You know, we got to have somebody to do it and you're right here. And I will have had access to the script. So they don't need to do paperwork for somebody else who doesn't know the script of Superman Returns and go through the approvals, whatever. And I sort of turned around and was like, okay, like I know how to tell a story. I'm still figuring out the best ways to tell stories, but I had to, you know, sit down and map that type of thing and and do the math to the extent that I could um, about how to tell that particular story. And then go with my instincts. And then when I had a full piece at the end of it, go back and be like, okay, what was this? What did I do? And what's interesting as well is that I turned in the first draft of that book and my editor was like, I love it. Um, but you wrote a book for adults and I need it to be a book for children. And I was like, got it. Because I just did, I sort of vomited it up in a way. Not that I was, you know, I, I just followed my instincts and that was it. And then I went back and then I looked at sentence structure and word choice. And that's something that still comes up. Uh, my, one of my Infinity War books that, that comes out next month, my editor, when I, was, when I was working on it, she'd be like, I just need you to like not use as big of words. Like, oh. But it's like I get it in my brain and I also am trying to up the ante for readers. I'd rather have somebody be like, that, that word is too big, don't use it, than to have it be too simplified. You know what I mean? Right. So of all these things that you've written, is there one theory of everything for, you know, all these different types of writing, including acting? Is there like one thing that ties all that writing, all that process together? Um, struggle. I mean, the writing process and the acting process are different. I mean, they tie together and that there are words present that you have to think about and internalize and look at like structure and stuff. But like, huh. I struggle to find the most efficient ways to work all the time because for different parts of the process, there are things that work for me and then things that don't. And sometimes I can control things. Sometimes I can't. For instance, idea generation is great. I will come up with a million ideas for a million things over a period of time. But then when it comes, when it's like, okay, idea generation is over. Now I have to create an outline or I have to create a thing and I have to start thinking about structure and I have to start mapping out the story. Then I get, I, I, I sometimes get a little bit overwhelmed and stressed because my note-taking process is like all over the place. I mean, I have like, we, I have tons of like Gmail drafts filled with like bits and pieces and names and descriptions for things. And then I'm like, okay. Does this fit? Am I like once I once I know what the story I want to tell? Like, where can I layer in these little bits and pieces? Um, and that's something that I still struggle with to find the most efficient ways for me to tell these stories and to map these stories out. Um, 
And I feel like that will be an ongoing struggle forever for me, just because every story is different. Um, and especially with kids and, and those sort of things, like I want to be able to tell something that is simple, but not too simple. I want there to be enough that a kid is like, ooh, this isn't just some like trash for kids. Because people, you know, there, there are lots of books out there that people just go, that's for kids. I'm going to sort of cheapen it a little bit or make it accessible in a way that is trite, maybe. Um, I do try to, to, to liven things up and, and, and layer in things or hide things in my work um, for kids that uh, hopefully they will connect to on a deeper level. How is your time divided between writing and acting? Are you 90% writing and then acting here and there? Or are you still working with Amy Schumer? What does that all look like? My acting gigs, I mean, I, I audition for television um, and film, and I audition for commercials. And I also, the collective theater company, we actually, we do a one-act play festival every year. So I usually do a play in that. And then just actually, when was it? A couple months ago now? Um, I was in Provincetown, Massachusetts, doing a, a play with the collective um, for the Provincetown, for the Tennessee Williams Festival. So yeah, so I mean, I act on stage. Uh, with the theater company and stuff. I did an episode of Bull earlier this year. I I do commercials and stuff. So I, that kind of stuff comes and goes. I mean, you know, I can audition for lots of stuff, but the ratio of my booking waxes and wanes. Um, I did a thing. I was at Rachel Dratch. It's not really hers because it's just sort of her branding, but there's a thing called Rachel Dratch's Late Night Snack Bites that's on True TV. And I did a sketch on that earlier this year. So like I do act and I do pop up and things. But writing is the thing that when I wake up in the morning, I have writing work to do. And then I've only had a couple of sort of crossovery things where I've had like been on a deadline and then I book an acting gig where I have to say, okay, I have to drop everything that I'm doing on this project and then commit two or three days to this television gig or whatever it is. Um, other than that, knocking on wood, I have not had a lot of like conflict in that way where I have to turn to somebody and say, I need more time. But, but I also, again, I work with people that I, I am friends with at this point because we worked so many times together. So people understand that I do have other things that pop up and are very understanding about that. We talk a lot about networking on the show. Would you say that networking was a big part of how you got to the point of which you're at? Are you just a natural? Is that not even a thing for you? Is it kind of just being a charming person? Is it, you know, stop it. <laughs> um, the thing, here's the thing. I'm kind of fascinated in an abstract way with networking and the term networking, because when I moved here, you know, I didn't know anybody and except the, like a handful of people. And somebody will be like, go to this thing. It's a great for, it's great for networking. And I never went into it in my mind with like an overt desire to, to quote unquote network. I, and it wasn't until I moved through a lot of life things where I was like, I think a better way to approach it for somebody else um, and how, how I realized that I was approaching it is seek to make genuine connections with people. And, um, and, and I think that that's, a, that's a bit of helpful advice because the, the idea of networking also sounds so like, I mean, I've, I've met people in my life who just are like, I just wanted to give you my business card by the end of this um, <laughs> you know, it's that thing of like, I, everybody wants to work and they want to meet people that they like and that they want to work with who are doing things. And it's, I totally understand that because I've been that person, but 
I think sometimes when people get the the idea of networking in their brain, it trips them up and they don't act naturally. And not everybody. I mean, you know, there are people that can manage those things. But I also know that that I've met people in my life who um, like want to work with me and all they want to do is sort of like get, you know, like they're on top of me all the time, even though we met at a party once and they gave me their card and we didn't really have a conversation. Um, and I understand, you know, the desire to work with people or connect with people. Absolutely. But I think the thing that is most important is to make sure that you have a genuine connection. Um, and that that's the thing that you're seeking out. Um, and to know when your time comes, I mean, there are people that I wanted to work for, before I was ready to do the work. Um, and I'm glad that I didn't try to, to approach them when I did, because they'd be like, you haven't, you're not there yet. Um, and I don't even know that they would even like be able to give me advice because my, my stuff would have maybe not even reached them. So I'm glad like know where you are creatively and what, you know, what you need to work on so that people also know if, you know, if you meet with somebody as a networker or at a party or whatever, that you're not going above your skill set. Now I know that sounds sort of contradictory to what I said before with sort of a make it till you break it, but it's more like, uh, I'm trying to think of like specific situations, you know, you want to work with people who are better than you. And who know what they're doing and can and and approach certain situations from I'm going to impart some of my experience and help you along so that you get your game raised. Does that make sense? Definitely. I was talking with I have an editor who I worked with for many years, and um, we've talked about other people that we know, and there was this one person that we both know who has seen bosses move around. Uh, a handful of times so that this person is not as a younger person in publishing is not necessarily does not necessarily have the mentor that this person needs in order to really raise their game as an editor and it's disappointing because you're like oh my gosh if they just had somebody that took the time to be like and it doesn't even have to be a stated goal to be like i'm going to mentor you but just somebody who's takes the time to be like these are the things that i have watched pay off for me in this business. And they are the things that I believe that they will pay off for you as well. You know, it's a shame that this person might not have that. But on the topic of mentors recently, I, there are people that I have kind of been mentoring, but then at the same time, I'm like, I need a mentor too. Like I'm not (laughs) out of the mentor woods. I still need somebody who I can go to and be like, can you just like give me some advice here? Cause I don't know. What about Amy Schumer? I mean, Amy, back when we worked together, like we haven't worked together, we haven't seen each other in a long time, um, just because she's busy and she's, you know, ascended to right. this different status. Like, right. but I mean, I knew her when we were rawer, created people, not creatively, but I mean, when we worked together with the collective, like I was still working a day job. I mean, she was still she was performing like uh, stand up and stuff and going on tour, but she hadn't had her moment yet, and then when we worked on the pilot together, like there were definitely things that I realized that I needed to raise my game. And I know that she like, you know, she surrounded herself with really great people. And I think that she was able to learn a lot. And I was able to, I know I was able to learn um, from my brief experience on Inside Amy Schumer, just sort of basic stuff. Um, And, you know, I write by myself here in my apartment and to write in a group is something that even now I'm still learning to do. 
because you're writing in a group is, you know, that process is a lot different. Um, yeah, I, I wish I still even knew how people can write so comfortably in groups. I think I've, I think sometimes I've almost grown in a way where it's, it's much more difficult for me now to try to write in a group than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because I become so solitary in my process where it's like, I have my, my, um, you know, I just, I know it's easier for me to sit down by myself and hash things out than sit with people and talk about story. So where does that leave you mentor wise? Are you still looking? Should we put out a post um, on the writer experience and, and like a call to action? Maybe you could just, you know, review some of our past guests and then we'll, we'll, no, I'm just kidding. Um, what, you know, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but that also comes back to what I was saying about having somebody who's like better than you, who can give objective criticism, um, but also know where you're coming from. That's something that I try to do with other people is be like, look, I know, I want to know where you're coming from, what you want to achieve with the story that you're telling. And then maybe I can help you get there and give you, you know, feedback that helps you because, you know, having a critical eye, I can be really critical of my own work. Um, and then sometimes I, I'm blinded by something and then I, or something, you know, uh, I don't see that something that somebody else says. And, you know, writing is about communication and being seen and there are times when I put it all out there and I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I need you to tell me, do you see me? And, and I have to trust in an editor to be like, yes, I see you. I see what you did. I see the story. Um, and give me feedback that is helpful where it's like, okay, these characters maybe need a little bit more here. We maybe we need a moment here. Um, and I've been trying, I mean, I have editors that do that who I really like. Um, when it comes to like small plays and, and, and well, I have a long form play as well. It's almost like I need to find a mentor that knows me inside and out so we can sit down and do this. But I don't, I have writers in my sphere who I, I love, but they're not, they don't get me in that way. Um, So if you are listening, if you're out there, you're a writer and you feel like you get me after listening to me babble, please get in touch. Amazing. I feel like there should be an app for that, right? The mentor app. You know, you can just uh, swipe right on the potential, you know, mentor. I'll do it. I'll do anything. <laughs> Definitely. A- there are writers, though. I, You know, there's like a writer's group. There is a writer's group that I've been invited to be a part of. And, and I like the writers in it. Like, But I also know sometimes like my specific voice and the stuff that I want to do is very unique. And so if I've been in places, also sometimes writers want to talk about what they would do to your work instead of give you the guidance to to do your work better. They're like, you know, if I were you, I would set it up like this. And then you're like, oh, that's where I shut off. Or I'm like, right. okay, you're not writing it though. I'm try. I just need clarity. I need to I need clarity in these moments. I don't need you to tell me what you would do to the story that I'm telling. But yeah, that's not. Yeah, <laughs> I, I sometimes like hearing people give feedback, which is also part of the um, the collective meets every Monday night. So everybody in the 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 company gets together and people put up new work. And one of the things is it's more about observation. So it isn't like people are actually giving critiques to actors. Like it's more about, I saw this, I heard this, um, as a way to just for the people that are putting the work up to get, uh, I don't know, impartial feedback. I don't know if that's an exact word, but so when I bring up like a short play and I know exactly what I wanted to do, and I know all these things. And then somebody gets up and starts talking about talking about the play and what they heard. 
there are times when people get it and I'm like, Oh my God, you get it. And then other people get up and they just want to tell you what they change. And I, as soon as that happens, my body goes into like this trance of like, you just want to talk about (laughs) this, not solving any problems for me. You're just giving opinions now. And I'm like, I really go to another place. And then I'm just like, "Uh uh-huh. There's like one person in particular sometimes that like drives me insane because <laughs> all of this person's impulses are like the exact opposite of what mine are. And I'm like, you don't see me, you don't get me, but I'm going to just sit here and take this because we are a part of a, a group and, and I'm a part of that group too. Does the writing journey ever stop if you were writing, uh, let's say, Avengers, an Avengers movie? Would you still feel as though you needed a mentor? Would that be an ongoing thing or would you feel like, you know, Oh yeah, okay. because I don't think there isn't. I don't think there is a thing that is big enough or high profile enough that I would feel confident in every choice that I made. Or, or you know, I mean, you know, there's it's there's collaboration involved, and especially if it was something that was as high profile as something like that, where everybody has an opinion, everybody's weighing in, and everyone has a different agenda. For me, and what I've learned is like if it serves the work let's do it. If it doesn't serve the work, if it is an arbitrary choice, if you're trying to accommodate somebody or somebody or something that doesn't make the work better, then it's a waste. Um, and that doesn't mean that work doesn't get changed to accommodate other things or other people or, uh, you know, uh, intent that is out of my hands. But if it serves the work, I'm down. Um, if it's not, doesn't serve the work, then I'll probably maybe try to fight it to the extent that I can, unless it, that is, if I don't understand where it's coming from, like, you know, creative decisions get made by, from, you know, it's not, people are always like, we're trying to make the best suicide squad movie. Maybe some people are. And then other people are like, no, we got to find a vehicle for this person. We got to do something that looks like this. We got to, right. this person needs to get hired. So like, there are a lot of like business decisions in, you know, Ben Affleck wasn't Batman because he was the best Batman. It's because he was, has a relationship with Warner brothers. And I'm saying that not as a representative of Warner Brothers. But you know what I mean? Like, sometimes creative decisions are not made creatively. They're made for business reasons. So, Which brings me to my next question. What's your goals? Do you want to be the writer of a Marvel film? Do you want to be an actor in a major motion picture, starring role? Obviously, at this point, you've accomplished a lot. You know, for some people, they haven't gotten that far. They're still trying to get their foot in the door. You're there, but you still, you know, have opportunities, right? So... What do you want to do from here? Everything in, in like the most basic, simplified, sort of like, yeah, I want to do it all. But once I, I mean, this sounds so dramatic, but once I came out, um, there was an ownership of my work that occurred. I felt more in control of my voice. And my voice, I have watched over the course of the past five years, my voice has changed and my my wants have changed and my needs have changed. Whereas as a younger person, a younger creative, a younger writer, a younger actor, you, you put your career in the hands of other people. You're waiting for an opportunity to be given to you by somebody else because that was what you know to be how people have success. You know, whether it is, oh, I'm dream of something and then somebody found, I mean, I feel like when I was a kid, you know, you would hear stories of actors being like, they found him in a mall and then he became a star. You know, like everybody has these, these uh, fairy tale stories more for actor than writing. Um, and you think like maybe somebody will discover me in a mall and then put me in a thing. And uh, I actually thought that in high school when my dad, 
I sent in like a headshot and resume to be Robin in Batman and uh, Batman Forever. My dad was working in Boston at, a, and the, I guess they were doing an open casting call in the hotel where he was staying. And he's like, "Fax your resume and headshot." <laughs> and I did, and I was in high school, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like I kept thinking, I was like, "This is my chance. They're gonna get this headshot and resume, and everything is gonna change for me." And then, of course, that didn't happen because that doesn't happen. But like. Once I started having ownership of my voice, you realize that, or I realized that, um, I don't want to just wait for other people to give me opportunities. So if I'm writing something, I write it for myself, and I want that control. So when I write for other people, when I write for a Marvel or I write for a DC, um, I know what I'm doing for them, and then I add the thing that they hire me for, one of the things they hire me for, which is to bring some of my voice. In the past few years, I really love the things that I've been able to write for other people, but I'm now in a phase where I'm getting more of my own work um, through the pipeline. So in the next couple of years, I hope to have uh, work out there in, in printed form that is more my story. And it would be nice to keep doing what I'm doing, but then also have those stories uh, take off in a way that allows me to uh, guide them and let those be my focus. Um, and to really just own the work that I'm doing, um, and, and the characters and things that I'm putting out there. But it doesn't mean that I wouldn't want to do the stuff that I'm doing with, with Marvel and DC characters because the nostalgia is thick. And as much as sometimes I'm like, you know, I don't know how much longer I can do certain things as a writer and wanting to own more of my own stuff. I love these characters and I love these worlds. And if somebody's like, we would like you to do this, it's, it becomes very difficult for me to say no, because I do, I do enjoy these things. One more question before we kind of wrap up and we'll, we'll ask a couple quick questions too. But basically, you know, looking back at your career, obviously, you know, you were just talking about getting a mentor and the things you want to do, but you have accomplished a lot. Is there one thing, one piece of advice that you would give an aspiring writer or actor uh, who is just starting out in their career that you've learned or maybe want to share? Whew. I mean, patience is one thing. Um, I think one of the things that allowed that freed me before I knew that it was as freeing as it actually was, was to, to do it for me as a writer and as an actor, you know, acting and writing fulfill me creatively. Um, and so if I, if I approach it from, I'm doing this to fill the hole in my soul or whatever reason it is that I, you know, the need to create the need to tell stories, all these things, if I do it for me, and then the byproduct is somebody laughs or is entertained or is riveted or, or whatever it is, hopefully riveted. Uh, then I'm not doing it for some dumb reason that I can't define because I didn't get something as I was when I was a kid. Or you know, people want to be famous too. People are unabashed in wanting to be on television, film, and write things because they would like to be famous. Um, I don't want to be famous. I have stories that I need to tell. And I need to get them out. And I also admit freely that I'm still building. I still have development as a writer, as a creator, as an actor. Um, and that, you know, I, I'm unafraid some, to, to say, yeah, I, I'm still learning. And that's something that I feel like we're tying, we keep tying it back to the fake it or make it thing from earlier. But, the, but like, it's okay to say, I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to try. So knowing too, like knowing what you need to improve upon and being, holding yourself. Okay. So let me go. This is my advice. 
as you grow as a writer, learn to hold yourself accountable to the story that you're telling. I used to think as a much younger writer before I was ever published, when I was just writing for myself, I did think like sometimes this is brilliant and wonderful. And this is like, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at this. That was back when I was just doing it for myself. And I wasn't able to sit down and go, what's the story you want to tell? How are you telling it? Now, because of actual work obligations, I have to know the ins and outs of my story because people will say, what about that? And I have to be able to go to bat for that. So learning the skill of holding myself accountable for the story that I'm telling um, is probably one of the most valuable skills and something that I'm still developing. I mean, with like with an Avengers Infinity War Cosmic Quest book, I know that even the most minute choice that I make whether that is a reference or a storytelling device or whatever it is, that somebody can turn around and go, no, or what? And that I would have to then say, this is the specific reason that that choice serves this whole story. And it's happened where I've done that and somebody said, oh, I see it. Okay, cool. And then it's gotten through. So as long as I keep doing that, holding myself accountable to the storytelling that I'm trying to accomplish, um, I feel like that's, that's probably a, a good piece of advice to give. So we're just going to dive right now into a couple last questions that we like to call a series of seemingly random questions. The first one being, your website is called Cootie Kid. What yeah. does that mean? Uh, Cootie Kid was a name that I was called. I was bullied in uh, elementary school. I moved to a new town in third grade, and the kids were real assholes. And Cootie Kid, um, the very first day, this girl was like, you have cooties. You're a Cootie Kid. Um, and I got called Cootie Kid uh, throughout elementary school. And I, when I was in Amsterdam speaking at the school a few weeks ago, I had to explain what cooties were because I guess people don't know. But like bugs, it's yeah. like cooties, like you don't want to touch somebody with cooties because they're like, it's like they're disease. So I was like a disease. And so when I got older, I was like, I'm going to make that my website and, and just to own it. Um, and I'm actually working on a Cootie Kid book. Um, that is loosely based on my experiences. So we'll hopefully that'll happen in the next couple of years and it'll all be tied together. I love that you're flipping it. It was something mm -hmm. negative and you're turning it positive and it's kind of like a fuck you to everybody that ever called you the cootie kid. Yeah, actually. Love that. Yeah. Um, next rapid fire question. Um, if you had to have dinner with any writer living or dead, who would you choose and why? Oh my god. That's like there are so many people that um David Sedaris? I mean, is that like a tacky trite answer? Like I don't think so. Um because I mean he he is somebody that turned me on to the written word in a way that like awakened something in me. Like when I moved to New York, I you know, I read a lot in college, like a lot of plays and stuff. Um, and I read a lot of comic books and stuff. And then I moved to New York and I, I wasn't into reading the way that, you know, I, I was in college. And a friend of mine was like, you really need to read David Sedaris. And I did. And I was like, it was almost like I was like reading it on the train, like turning to people like next to me, like, can you, this is amazing. Because it just was something that made me laugh so hard. And it was so funny and so clever and so personal that it really awakened me um, as a writer. So I would say David Sedaris. 
and or maybe as like a runner up david rakoff who was another writer who i uh read around that time and uh who had a really caustic point of view that i really liked and yeah there it is next and last seemingly random question what is something about you or your career that nobody knows oh about me or my career we call this one the stumper yeah i don't know that they're that that i'm like I don't know why, but I'm looking around my office right <laughs> now. Like, I'm going to find something where I'm like, by the way, my office has like action figures. and Well, maybe that's it. Hotchkeys. Um, what is it that somebody that I, that know, that people don't know? Um, gosh, I don't know. Maybe Wait. they don't know. I mean, there are people that I've interacted with in the past few years that didn't know that I came out when I did like some people think that I've been out and gay since I was like 20 something. Um, so when I tell them like, Oh yeah. So I met my partner and then I didn't really come out until, and people are like, what? Which is kind of weird. Cause I still have what I like to call gay issues that, that pop up um, from time to time where I'm like, did I come out too late? But yeah, I would say that, that yeah, that maybe that's my secret or something that people don't know is that I did have an elongated gay journey. There it is. Um, <laughs> if I think something better, um, I'll email you. But I'm like, <laughs> and I'll just read I it. I got all my uh, secrets uh, out there. I'll, if, you, if you email me, I'll just read it. Um, no, I think that was great. So with that being said, do you want to just shout out your Twitter handle and then plug whatever you're working on right now that you can or cannot talk about? Yeah. Um, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Brandon T. Snyder, um, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-S-N-I-D-E-R. Um, I have a big book coming out. It is Avengers Infinity War, The Cosmic Quest, Volume 2, Aftermath, which is um, the first thing that's coming out that will deal with some of the fallout of Infinity War. It's a middle grade novel, although... It is a middle grade novel, um, and if you're if you really are like into adult novels, you might find it very simple. But I know adults that like sort of treat it as like a fun beach read. Um, past that, um, there's a few things in the hopper that I'm working on that I can't really talk about. But um, yeah, hopefully some original works of mine will be out in 2019. Brandon, thank you, man. Thank you very much for having me. I had a good time. Yeah, us too. Hope you had fun. Um, Thank you again. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.